You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. Well, hey, we have uh, been going through a series called Promised Land over the, the last couple weeks. And uh, this, this message I've been really excited about because this week's message uh, really, in my opinion, ties uh, everything together. In fact, I, I think this is kind of a, a unique message in some ways because uh, we've been talking about these promises uh, that God gives to his people in Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And uh, what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks is all of these promises are actually uh, promises that God makes to us, that he doesn't just promise this for the nation of Israel, that he promises this for all of people who would believe in him. And so let me, let me read this for us. Exodus chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 5, says, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, uh, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So we've been talking about that uh, God is a promise maker, and he's also a promise keeper, that God always fulfills the promises or the covenant he makes to people. He says, say therefore, he's talking to Moses, he says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so God's promises salvation, I'll save you. He says, and I'll deliver you from slavery to them, freedom. And then he says, and I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment he says, purpose, I'm actually going to redeem your life. I'm going to give you some value and some things you didn't have before. And then he says, and I'll take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And there's the fourth promise that God says, I'm going to make you a family, uh, that there's going to be something unique about you because I'm your God and you are my people. And whenever you see that in Scripture, kind of that you are my people, uh, you could use that southern word y'all, that it's not just you as individuals, it's you collaboratively together. And he says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham and to Isaac into Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. And what we're talking about for the last couple of weeks is God has made these promises to us that he promises salvation he promises freedom he promises purpose and today we're talking about family and in case you fall asleep or the power goes out here's here's the big idea it's in the context of family that we really begin to experience these other promises that it's in the context of family that we truly begin to understand salvation freedom and purpose in fact the purpose behind every promise that God has made to us is himself. The, the purpose behind every promise is that when God says, hey, I'm going to promise to do something in you, uh, what he's promising us is that we would get more of him, that we would experience his power and his presence, that we would begin to experience his activity and his will for our lives. And so what I would, I would suggest to you is that every promise in Exodus 6, behind the promises, the purpose of God saying, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And because he would be our God, it's that in that context that we experience salvation and freedom and purpose and family. And the good news for us, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Which means for us, we find salvation, we find freedom, we find purpose, and we find family all in and through and because of Jesus. In fact, if you 
fast forward from Exodus 6 all the way to the arrival and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, one of the most controversial things that Jesus told people is that he was the Son of God. And not just was he the, the Son of God, but he told people that they could actually know God as Father. Like that was revolutionary. That was brand new news because all throughout the Old Testament, this idea that God was the God of Israel was kind of a national identity. Uh, no one walked around being like, God is my God. They would say, God is our God. And then Jesus rolls up and says, no, 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 he's my father and I have come so that he can be your father. And it was so controversial that people would follow Jesus, I think sometimes, just because they wanted to hear what he would have to say next. And this is things that he would say like John 14, 6, that Jesus would say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. And he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And this was a huge new idea. Because even at this time, the idea of seeing God, well, God was behind the curtain in the temple in the Holy of Holies, and no one knew God, and no one saw God, and no one referred to God as Father. And this is Jesus' huge, extraordinary claim. I am one with the Father, and through me, you can be one with the Father also. In fact, this was one of the claims that caused the religious officials to desire to kill Jesus. Because how could he claim to know God and be God? And how could he claim that we could have that kind of relationship with God? And this is really important for us because the idea of having such a special relationship with God that you could actually know him, Father, is uniquely and distinctly a Christian idea. If you look at world religions across the world, none profess that you could actually have a relationship with God where you would know him as Father. Jesus is the one that says, no, 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 listen, he loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But when the disciples ask Jesus, hey, how should we pray? Jesus says, that's a great question. When you pray, I want you to pray our Father. And this was a big, huge, new idea that you could actually know God and love God. And Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And friends, one of the most important things about us would be how we answer the question, do you know God is Father? We live in a, a world that's very spiritual. And so sometimes you'll hear us say, uh, faith is a journey and not a guilt trip because we want to engage people on their spiritual journey. Or we'll say things like, uh, 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 faith is a journey and no one should walk alone. Or life is a journey and no one should walk alone. And the reason we say that is because our culture is very spiritually open. And we just think, hey, uh, we don't want you to hug a tree. We don't want you to go try to embrace Mother Earth. We want you to know Jesus who came fully God, fully man, lived and died on your behalf, on the cross, for your sin, and he rose again. We want to engage people with the gospel. And the most important thing you could answer is, do you know God is Father? Not, are you a Christian? Not, have you gone to church? 
Uh, not was your grandmother a Christian or were your parents a Christian. The question is, do you know God as Father? And I love the way that John says it. Uh, John in 1 John is writing uh, another letter that we have in Scripture, and he, he's speaking about this very thing, and I love it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, hopefully you're still there in your Bible. He says, everyone who believes. I love that he starts with the word everyone because this is for everyone. Uh, that includes you and it includes me. It includes the rebellious. It includes those of us who have messed up, those of us who have things we're ashamed of in our lives, think skeletons in the closet, things we hope that no one ever discovered. That, that includes the religious ones who we've just tried to be really good and tried to be moral, and we have a list of people who have done things worse than us, so we think we're okay. And John says, yeah, this is for everyone. This is for all of you. And he says, for anyone who believes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And John begins to refer to what Jesus referred to, this idea of birth and belief. I want to talk about that for just a minute this morning, birth and belief. See, what the scriptures tell us is that every single one of us is one person with two parts, that you have your physical body, but you also have a spiritual soul. And so what the Bible tells us is that when, when every person is born, while they're physically alive, they're also spiritually dead. That everyone is born physically alive, but that because of sin, because of rebellion, because of our flesh, we're actually disconnected. We're spiritually dead, and that's our spiritual state. And I, I thought about that, and I thought about Audrey having uh, our two sons, that, like in that first moment of life, hearing the cries of our sons was such an incredible experience. And I remember as we were preparing for that, the doctor always said, hey, a healthy baby is a noisy baby. And I'm not sure why I thought this, because maybe the movies or the jokes, but I kind of expected this moment that the doctor was going to like spank the kids and then they were going to cry. I was kind of waiting for that. And it never happened. They both just came out screaming their heads off. And the doctor's like, hey, they're healthy. They're screaming. That's great. And what Jesus would tell us and what John tells us is that we're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. And this is a result of sin and rebellion. And this is why the Bible talks so much about you don't have to try to be a good person. Because if you're a good person, but you're spiritually dead, you're still just dead. And what the Bible teaches us is that believing in Jesus, when we actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and when we believe that Jesus has done what the scriptures tell us that it's so significant, it's so big, that I think that the biggest thing that God could give us to give us how big and how big of a ship this is, is that it would say that you won't, you're not just saved, but you're actually spiritually reborn. That you are fundamentally changed on the deepest level of who you are. I love that when Jesus in the Gospels tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now I get it. Because a lot of people don't go to church because they've been to church before. And like when you hear that word reborn, like you, you may think of, like I think of uh, somebody with a southern accent screaming at you, you must be reborn, brother. Meaning they question your salvation and how good you are. When Jesus says it and when John says it, I don't think that's what the tone they use. 
I think they're saying, hey, when you believe, you're actually spiritually reborn. And I love that John gives us some insight. He says, when you believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, here's the deal. Jesus' last name isn't Christ. It's a title. And the name Jesus comes from the name Joshua. So the name Jesus means God is my Savior, and Christ is a title, which means anointed one or the chosen one to be our Savior. So when you believe Jesus, who God is my Savior, the Christ is the anointed one who's chosen to be our Savior. When we believe in that, that causes that spiritual rebirth because what we acknowledge is that sin is our problem. That we have a problem, it's a sin problem, that we rebel against God, we choose our way over his way, we choose our desires over his desires, we've made idols out of other things, and the only thing, the only solution to our sin problem is a savior. That someone would have to make a sacrifice, that there's a price that would have to be paid, somehow the wrath of God would have to be appeased, and that's Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, fully God, fully man, holy, blameless, dies in our place for our sin, although he's sinless, although he's perfect, although he has no guilt, no shame, he sacrificially dies in our place for our sin. Which is why we celebrate the resurrection. It's because when he raises on the third day, he raises in victory, he raises victorious over death, he raises victorious over sin, he raises victorious over shame, he raises victorious over the devil, and his big claim is because of his resurrection, because of his victory, we too have a spiritual resurrection, we too have victory, that his victory is our victory, that we can be saved and redeemed and made new, and God can be our Father. And the same Holy Spirit that dwells in him is the same Holy Spirit that now indwells in us. And because of that, we are completely and utterly changed. I think what John is saying is that when you come to that realization, when you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, when Jesus is Lord, when you repent of your sin and when you surrender yourself to God, what it means is in heaven it's kind of like hearing a baby cry for the first time that your soul cries out, and they're like, there's been a birth. There's been a rebirth. What was once was lost is now found. What was dead has now come alive. And what John tells us, which is said all over Scripture, is one of the biggest things that happens in that moment is that you are completely changed, that your identity is completely changed, and the way that God sees you is as a child that you would become a son or you would become a daughter of the Most High God. And listen, that changes everything. Because it means that no matter what you think about yourself, when God looks at you, he sees his son whom he loves or he sees his daughter whom he loves, that you are his beloved child and he wants to be your father, that he wants to know with you, he wants to be with you, he wants to do life with you, he wants to communicate with you, he always wants what's best for you, that you have a heavenly father who loves you. And when you're made new, when you're reborn, when you become a child, it completely changes your life. 
See, a new identity is always about a new life. When God changes who you are, who you are always changes what you do. Your identity always informs your activity. Who you are determines what you do. And that means for you as a child of God, it means that you don't do good works to earn your Father's love. You do good works because you've been freely loved by the Father. It means that you don't fight for victory in your life. You fight from the victory that's already been purchased for you. It means that your past no longer defines you. It means your heavenly Father is the only one who gets to put names and labels upon you. It means that your life is marked by purpose. Like the scriptures say that because of that, that even our pain, even our suffering, even the worst days are purposeful days. That God never wastes a moment of our life, but it has deep, significant purpose. But what it means is that because of Jesus, you can know the Father. It means heaven comes to you. Like, I, I think sometimes we reduce Christianity to mean, hey, I've been saved by Jesus, and now I'm just waiting till the day I die so that I can go to heaven. And that's not the entire gospel. It means that you can experience Jesus and his power and his presence and his work. And it means heaven can meet your life on earth today. That you can experience the working and the power and the presence and the purpose of God in your life every day until you see him in heaven will you experience it fully for the rest of eternity. And Jesus has given us salvation and freedom and purpose and family. In fact, as a son or a daughter, uh, there's things that mark our lives. Just like being a son or a daughter in whatever family you're in marks your life. Uh, the, each, each family kind of has their own little culture and house rules, and they do things a little bit differently. And what's interesting is that's true for God's family, that because I'm a son or because you're a daughter, what, what it means is because he's our father, uh, we do things as a family that only make sense because he's our father. There's some house rules that are good for us. They inform our identity. They inform our behavior. They inform our eternity. And as I was thinking about this and praying about this this week, there's uh, three commandments or three, three main things in Scripture uh, that I've heard people call the three greats for the Christ follower. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that this morning. We're going to call it the three G's. And the first one is this. What the Scripture says is for every single believer, for every single son and for every single daughter, your life is marked by each of these. The first one is love. Because you're a child of God, because he's your father, because Jesus died in your place and for your sin and rose on the third day on your behalf, your life is marked by love. And you would find that in the first G, which is called the great commandment. And you can see this all throughout the Gospels, but what it means is this, is because we are so loved by God, we can also love other people. That loved people love people. Uh, Jesus says it this way in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 30. He says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That Jesus, 
the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus, the name above all names at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, you need to know this, always, always, says your relationship with God always affects how you love other people. He never separates the two. Like Jesus never gives us permission to go, I love the Lord with all my, all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my strength, and I can be a jerk to everybody around me. Jesus never gives you permission to that. He says your love for God, your love from God, always influences how you love the people around you. Jesus says there's no other command that's greater than this one. He's like if you're going to give your life to obeying one command, make it this one, love God and love people. And you love God the way that, that he's told us to love him through worshiping him and following him and walking in obedience to him, this joyful relationship. And then that love informs how we love other people. We love God and we love people, the great commandment. Uh, the second G that informs and marks every son and every daughter is uh, one of mission. And you would find this in the great commission. And the reason that it's called the Great Commission is because it's the mission we do with God. It's the activity that our Father calls us to. Jesus tells us in Luke 15 that we looked at this week that he, he, he tells us what it's like to be a son. And Jesus tells three stories. He starts with one of a shepherd who lost a sheep. And Jesus is the shepherd. He says, I leave the 99 who are safe for the lost one every time. Jesus says, you, you know what it's like to be a son? I'm the guy that turns the house upside down looking for the lost coin, and I rejoice when it's found. And then Jesus tells a parable about two sons, one rebellious, one religious, who both completely missed out on the heart and the love of their father. And Jesus reminds us that he's the third son. That because he pursues the lost and the religious, because he would die in our place, we can come home to the loving arms of the Father. You know, it's interesting that when I was a kid, I wanted to be just like my dad. And my dad did stuff that now, like, I don't even enjoy. But back then, it's like, hey, because he's my dad. I want to be like my dad. And I remember vividly that I, my parents had, like, a bathroom. And so I would, like, sneak into the bathroom. And even though I didn't shave, I'd, like, throw on dad's aftershave. And sometimes I'd like pretend to shave with this stuff even though there was nothing going on. And, and like I'd put on the aftershave but then I'd also like put on the cologne and I'd like use dad's hairbrush because I had hair back then. And then I would like walk out of the bathroom and I'd smell like the cologne aisle at Walgreens. You know, nothing good going on there but I smelled like it. And I thought, well, because I want to be, I want to be like my dad. And see, because of Jesus, we, we want to become more like our big brother Jesus. Because of Jesus, we want to become more like our loving Father, that we want to be children who are about our family's business, that if we're going to spend time with God, then we have to be about doing the things that God is actively doing. And the way that Jesus delivers this to us is in Matthew chapter 28, 18 to 20, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, listen, you know what your life's about as a son? You know what your life's about as a daughter? Reaching people who are far from God. And not just reaching them, but discipling them, baptizing them, 
teaching them, equipping them, sending them out to go do the same. And Jesus promises, he says, listen, as you go, as you're doing, I want you to know all authority in heaven and earth is mine, and I'm with you in the going. I'm with you in the doing. And here's what I believe, that that power and presence of Jesus is available for that activity, is significant and unique to that activity. That Jesus is saying, hey, as you pursue this calling, as you fulfill this destiny, I'm with you in a certain way because I've called you and I've commanded you to go. So we're called to love. We're called to mission. Uh, the great commandment, the great commission, there's one more G, and it's family. It's family. Now, I have to give credit where credit is due. I heard Dave Ferguson, who's a pastor in Chicago, name this, and so I'm just going to steal it, but I'm giving him credit. He calls it the great collaboration. Then we have the great commandment, the great commission, and then the great collaboration. And you go, I've never heard of that before. Where would I find that? Well, that's John 17. Jesus is communicating with his father, and he's praying, but this time there's people around to know what he's praying. And this is what some people call Jesus' high priestly prayer, that he stands before God interceding on our behalf for our good. And one of the things he prays is this, John 17, verse 20. He says, I do ask, so he's requesting this from his father. He says, I do ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is fascinating. Because Jesus is praying for his followers who are there, but he's also praying for you and for me. He's praying for those who are there, but he's praying for those who are to come. He's going, Lord, I don't just pray for the 12. I pray for those who will know me through the words of the 12. And this is his prayer. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, and they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I'm a simple person. And so what I think Jesus says is, hey, Father, because you and I are one, and because they're one with me, together it's we. And Jesus' prayer is this. Don't miss this. Jesus' prayer is that the followers, the children, the disciples would be one, just as Jesus is one with the Father. It means that we personally have a relationship with Jesus, that you have a personal walk, that you have some things that you need to do alone with your Heavenly Father, but don't miss this. There's some things that you can't do alone, that your walk with Jesus just isn't personal. It's also corporate. That you can't do life alone. You can't follow Jesus alone. There's no mavericks. That it's collaboration. The word we would use is family. I think about this having children of my own. That whenever we had a child, like I'll pick on Nolan for a second. Like when we had Nolan, our second son, like there was this really unique moment because we got to introduce Shane to Nolan. Like, hey, because this is our son, like because that, that Audrey's mom and because I'm dad, like 
this is your brother. Like, you, you didn't do anything to participate in this, but because we're family, this is your child, this is your son. And this is your grandma, and this is your grandpa, and this is your aunts, and these are your uncles, and these are your cousins, and, and these are the extended family that just because you're ours, these people are also ours. And I couldn't imagine, like, doing that. Like, hey, this is your family. And a child responding back, like, hey, you're my dad and you're my mom, but that's not my brother. Like, that is not my sister. That dude cannot be my grandfather. And I do not receive him or her, like, as aunt and uncle. Like, no, I'm not doing that. Like, you go, no, that's not how family works. Like, once you're in, you're in. And every family has that weird uncle that you're not sure about. And if you don't have that weird uncle, it's probably you. I mean, I'm just saying, like, that's how family works. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, when you become part of the family of God, it's not just about you, it's also about the people around you. Go back to 1 John 5, verse 1. I want you to see this. He goes from... This is how you become a child of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of Him. That fast from personal to corporate. From there's fast individual to multiple. It's not an if. It's a because. Hey, if this is your father, like come on parents, when your kids are fighting, what's it do to your heart and your soul? Like when your kids are bickering in the room, you're like, can't we just get along? And our father's like, no, I want you to know, like because I sent my son to die for you, I love you and I love you. You're a son and you're a daughter and you're a daughter and you're a son, but you're all my children. And the prayer is that you would be unified. That you could be unified by the fact that I have saved you, that I have redeemed you, that I sent Jesus, that I am your father. We become family. See, church, we're not here to entertain people. We're here to engage people with the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, and I want you to think that way. Like, when you come in on a, a Sunday morning, like, if you've ever noticed, we never call these worship services. You've never once heard us call it a worship service. Because going to a worship service is like going to a movie. You walk in, you spectate, you hope you're entertained, and then you leave. That's not our desire. That's why the lights are all on. Like it's a gathering. And so when you walk in on a Sunday, it's like, hey, there's my family. This is my spiritual family. These are the people that I do life with because of Jesus. We're loved by the Father. These are my brothers and my sisters, my aunts and my uncles. Like this is the family of God in my life. And the church is a family that always has room for more. The church is a family that has room for lost sons and daughters, rebellious sons and daughters. We've got room for the weird uncles and the spiritual family. Listen, the church is a family of broken, hurting people who have been saved by Jesus, and there's always room for more. And church, I want you to hear me on this. The family of God is unified by one thing and one thing only, Jesus. That's what unifies us. Like the, the church is supposed to be a family 
that is so unique and so diverse that it's actually a sign. Did you catch that in John 17 that Jesus goes, hey, like we would probably ask the question and we're recording this so I'll probably get an email from someone calling me a heretic. But you, like we would say, how do we know that Jesus really came, really lived, really died, really rose again? And the Sunday school answer is the Bible. And that's totally true, 100%. The Bible, that's where we start, the living, active word of God. We go, hey, because the Bible says so. But did you hear what Jesus also said in John 17, which we know because of the Bible? He says, because the way they're unified, it would actually be proof that I'm real. That because of the way they're unified, people walk in and go, These, like, how do Packers fans and Bears fans get along? Like, what's, what could be so huge that a Republican and a Democrat could worship together? Like, what could be so powerful that people who have nothing in common, and if it weren't for this thing, would probably never be in a room together? How does this work? And our answer is because of Jesus. Because he saved us. Because he died in our place for our sin, because he's made us new, because he's given us salvation and freedom and purpose, he's also given us family. Church, we are not unified by the clothes we wear. If you want to wear a suit, wear a suit. You want to wear flip-flops in December, wear flip-flops in the December. We're just glad you're here. We're not unified by what Bible translation you use. It's not like we have an NIV side and an EF, you know, ESV side and the message people sit in the back. Like, that's not what unifies us. We're not unified by a denomination. We're not unified by whether your kids go to public school, private school, or homeschool. Uh, we're, not, we're not unified by what party you vote for. We're not unified by who you root for in the championship game. That's all diversity. And we can celebrate that. But we're unified by his, Jesus. So we celebrate diversity and we're unified around the person and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I think, I don't have time to go into this, but like I, I saw that so clearly this week in the life of the disciples. Like Jesus calls a couple fishermen, some tax collectors, Simon the Zealot, I love that one, like a zealot, uh, a guy's like a politician, probably a revolutionary, like always trying to throw over the government. And then there's Judas. And like everything I read on Judas is they're like, all we can assume is that Judas was a thief, always has been a thief, and was a thief when Jesus called him. And so you go, how did that work? Like, fishermen, follow me. Zealot, we're not going to overthrow the government quite yet. Come follow me. Like, hey, Judas, come on. You know, I mean, like, it's because of Jesus. It wasn't about their background. It wasn't about their education. It wasn't about their experience. It wasn't even about what they desired at the time. It was about the one whom called them Jesus, and he was enough. And so our family then exists really in three areas. It's local, it's extended, and it's universal. So we have a local church. The local church is this. It's the people we worship with. It's the people we do life with. Our, our, our family is extended. And so I, I would say, like, you know, we, we don't just love our church. We love all churches. Like, we love churches who love Jesus or are on, on the mission with us. 
And like, I, I would say, you know, the fact that we can meet at First Presbyterian is possible because they consider us brothers and sisters in Christ and we consider them brothers and sisters in Christ. And like, we love those guys. And like, I don't feel like a guest here. And I hope you don't feel like a guest here because they don't want us to feel like guests here because it's family. Even though different denomination, a little bit different structure, we love Jesus. We love our local church. We love the extended church. We love the universal church. It means in the, in the extended church of God that like we have brothers and sisters who are part of every tribe, every tongue, and every language. Like When we get to heaven, it's going to be like a huge family reunion, and you're going to be like, I didn't even know you, but you're my brother. And I didn't even know you, and you're my sister, and we're going to get to know our family. And so when it comes to the local church, the local church is more than where you worship on a Sunday morning. The local church is about loving each other. It's about having one another's back. It's about caring for and supporting and encouraging and carrying the burdens of and walking with and, and, and also holding accountable the people around you. Look, as you look around, this is our family. This is the people we should be engaging with. This is the people we should be loving. This is the people that we should be investing in. This is the people that we should be caring for. These are your local brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need one another. And what's so interesting is this idea was so radical in the first century. Like during the time that, that John would write this, it was actually illegal in the Roman Empire to call someone who was not legally your family, family. Like so when he goes, hey, love the children of God, the Romans of Fistler are going, that's illegal. You can't do that. Because if I call you my brother and you're not my brother, but by calling you my brother, what that means in, in their system is you don't have access to my finances, you don't have access to my, my property, you have access to my inheritance. There's legal standing that happens within the context of family. So the Roman government didn't know how to handle it when the Christians are going, hey, that's my brother and that's my sister. And they're like, well, okay, how does this work and what does this mean? And does that mean they have access to your property? It goes, it means they have access to everything. Like, you're my brother. You have access to my heart. You have access to my mind. You have access to my life. You have access to my fridge. You can stop over and use the bathroom. If you need to stay at my house, you can stay at my house. Like, listen, we're family. And this was so unique but so central to the first Christ followers. We don't just get saved and find a local structure to meet in. We're saved and we have a local family who is our family, our brothers and our sisters. And church, the church operates best when it operates as a family. This is why, this is why you cannot sit at home and pull up even the greatest preachers on your TV or computer and call it church. Because not Jesus, not any of the disciples would call it church. They're going to know church is family. Church is about worshiping God, but it's also about engaging and loving the people that you worship with. And listen, I listen to some really great pastors and teachers on my, on my phone and my laptop and, and on my iPad, but that's not church. Church is family. There are 59 one another statements in scripture. 
love one another, care for one another, carry the burdens of one another. And you cannot obey or live out those 59 sitting at home alone looking at a computer screen because the church is family. And listen, I'm a realist. Sometimes love is a feeling, but love is always a commitment. Like, you know what happens when family gets together for too long? People's feelings get hurt. Sometimes there's disagreements. Sometimes people annoy people. Sometimes fights break out. Sometimes people leave the gathering angry. It's going to happen. Like, and I listed all those, and you just thought about me. I get that. And that's where we borrow love from God to love one another. There will be frustration. There will be disagreements. We will annoy one another. But love covers a multitude of sins. And like, here's something that I just want to be part of our culture here. Just treat people how you want to be treated. So like, if you ever think you'll need a little bit of grace, make sure you always extend that grace to other people. Because in the moment that you need the grace, people remember, oh yeah, but they've always been really gracious with me. Like if you're the person that always drops the hammer, expect at some point to have the hammer drop back on you. And I think unfortunately churches create cultures that then when they need grace, they go, yeah, but the church has never been a church of grace and now this is the wrong church. And let's just be like our heavenly father. Let's love one another and give grace towards one another. All right, so we got to wrap this thing up. And as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about this idea of family and how the church operates best as family. And that the Bible says that if you love the Father, if you're loved by the Father, if Jesus has saved you and made you new, then you're a child of God who will also love the children of God, then we have to believe that, that this will change our life, that this is supposed to be something that is so powerful and so foundational that we would live it out and it would actually change our life and it would be exciting and it would be good for us. And I was thinking about this this week because we, we had a family party at our house on Friday and so I'm kind of like watching the family party thing because here's what I've discovered. Uh, families almost always meet in houses. Like they can meet anywhere, but houses just turn out to be really good uh, like tools for families to meet in. So like Thanksgiving's around the corner. My guess is you'll be in somebody's house and not at a park in Belvedere. That's just my guess. You'll be in a house because houses are really great tools for families to meet in. But here's what's also true. When the family gathers in the house, it always takes work. I think that's why sometimes churches are called the house of God. It's not just because God's supposed to like dwell here, but it's because that's where the family gets together. The, The house is just a structure. You know what happens right now if your house is empty? It's just an empty house. But when the family's in the house, that's when the house becomes the home. I think that's true with the house of God. That it, when the people are in the house, that's when it becomes the home. That God and his people dwell there. But here's what happens in the house. When people are coming to the house, family gatherings always take a lot of work, don't they? That's why you sometimes don't have people come to your house because you don't want to do the work that's required to have people in your house. But I I was watching my wife and some others this week that when people are coming to the house, it requires the family to do hard work, to serve the family. So just some observations that if you're going to have a family gathering, uh, first you have to have somebody who organizes the gathering. Hey, can everybody get together at this time, at this place? It also means somebody has to plan a meal. What is everybody going to 
eat. It also means someone that has to go grocery shopping uh, to get the food and the supplies to make that meal that's been planned. It also means that someone then has to cook the meal that's been planned and the stuff's been bought for. And then it means, come on, men, you know this to be true, it means the house has to be clean because if you're going to have people to your house, it has to first look like no one lives in your house, right? That's like the standard. Uh, and so the house has to be clean and then everything has to be, uh, everything has to be in the right place. Everything has to uh, be neat and tidy. And then you have to make sure everybody is coming. And then there's this moment where it's, it's everything set and then the family shows up. And just another observation is once the family is gathered, it still takes a lot of hard work for the family to be gathered because uh, in my house and the family's gathered, you can usually find me in a comfortable chair entertaining people. That's my job, like to entertain. But what I've noticed is, is that when there's people in the house, that there's people making sure everybody's having a good time. Everybody, you know, there's somebody making sure everybody knows where everything is, that there's uh, people always caring for the kids, making sure that, you know, they've got their food and they've got their spot. And there's people making sure everybody feels welcomed and making sure everybody feels loved and, and making sure everybody feels included. And then you have a really great time together and then everybody leaves the gathering and then there's still like garbage to be taken out, dishes to be done. So then there's work that happens after the gathering. So getting people together, getting the family together takes a lot of hard work. And then I, I love my wife, so I'm talking about her. And like every now and then you get the blessing that you get invited to somebody else's house. And men, come on, men, help me out here. When your wife gets invited to somebody else's house, there's always a question that she asks and the question is, what can I bring with me? And you're like, why we got to bring something? They invited us to their house. But listen, if you invite our family to anything, the first question my wife's going to ask is, what can I bring with me? And see, the thing is, is when you come to the house, you always bring something with you. Now, that, that's not true if you're a guest. Like, guests always get a free pass. Because you're, you're, well, hey, come on in, you're welcome. Like, hey, you're just a guest. You get to come empty-handed, but come on, church, help me. Like, if you keep coming to the house empty-handed, sooner or later you're not a guest, sooner or later you're a freeloader. <laughs> sooner or later people are looking at the food you're putting on the plate and being like, brother couldn't have stopped at the gas station and brought a bag of chips? Like, uh, you know what I mean? Come on. Come on. And so when you go to the house, you always bring something with you and some people make homemade stuff somebody picks stuff up like that's okay because family is not just about consuming family is about contributing and listen i know i'm preaching to the choir so forgive me but listen sometimes people will talk about church and they'll go like well man i just don't know if i'm getting anything out of it and here's what i would say to you you get out what you put in so if all you do is consume, well, yeah, it's kind of like me going to the gym, putting on my workout clothes, getting my earbuds in, and never leaving the locker room. And then being like, man, I'm just not seeing the transformation. Just not getting the gains. People are like, bro, you got to make it to the weight room. Oh. Listen, when you come to the house, you always bring something with you. And listen, we're talking about the church. So like one of the things you bring with you is your presence. Like, you being here matters. And listen, we don't take attendance. Like, I don't think God wants you to be an uh, attender. What I think is he wants your engagement. Like, look around real quick. Just look around. Don't look at me. Look at all the people around you. The people around you 
need you. And they do. Like, you might bring a word of encouragement. You might be the one that gives a hug or a smile. You might be the one that has that conversation. The people around you need you. And so when you're not here, there's always an empty seat. There's always a lack of conversation. There's always an empty spot of love because when you bring, come to the house, you bring your presence with you. When you come to the house, church, you bring your worship with you. Like, did you know that your worship is actually a sign, a testimony to other people? Like a couple weeks ago, we, we had a, a worship gathering, and I was, I was really into it. I was really worshiping. The, the spirit was, was moving, and all of a sudden, I looked up right next to me, and there was somebody, like, standing next to me worshiping, but the thing was, I was on the edge. Like, that dude didn't have a seat, but he was just, like, worshiping. It kind of freaked me out. I thought maybe the Holy Spirit was there, but it was just a guy, and, like, and I had people tell me after the service, they go, that guy's worship inspired me, and I was like, you know what's crazy? Like, he wasn't worshiping so you could see him. He was just worshiping. And your worship does that for other people. Like, wow, like you can help turn up the temperature of other people's worship. So when you come to the house, you bring your worship. When you come to the house, you bring your love for God and for other people. Because loved people love people. So when you're here, it's a greater capacity. It's a greater capability for people to feel loved and engaged. Like, listen, when you, when you come to the house, you, you bring your checkbook because you're giving fuels and funds that this house, like more people can be loved, more ministry can be done when you bring your giving or your tithing or just your generosity, that's something that you bring to the house. Like when you bring, come to the house, you're, you're invited to bring guests with you to the house. Like when you come to the house, good things should happen. What I'm trying to say, church, is we love our church by loving one another, by caring for one another, by serving one another, by using our energy and our service and our generosity and our talents and our abilities and our worship. We bring it all to the house faithfully and continually, not just for us, but for the greater good of the family. See, listen, if you really want to experience the power and the presence, if you really want to experience the promises that God's made you, then church, we have to embrace the three G's. We have to be children that are marked by love because of the great commandment. And we have to be children that are marked by mission because of the great commission. And we have to be children that are dedicated to the family because of Jesus' high priestly prayer for collaboration. And see, none of that, none of the salvation, none of the freedom, and none of the purpose was ever meant to be experienced alone. It's meant to be experienced in community. So earlier uh, this week, I put out on Facebook an announcement that I was going to make a, a big, huge announcement. Huge. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Big announcement. And that's why you're all here. But here, here it is. As I was thinking about this over the last couple weeks, we've been praying through some stuff. In First Peter 2, chapter 9, it says, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's all identity. Uh, because of who he is, we've been a chosen race. We're a chosen people. Uh, we're a royal priesthood. That wherever, everywhere we go, the presence of God goes with us. We're actually a holy nation. That doesn't mean America. That means the people of God. just want to clarify. And, and then it says the people for his own possession, that because he's my father and I'm his child. And it says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. 
Now, if you'll let me, I think what that means is that's personal, but if we make that plural, if we put that in the context of family, I think we could read it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I think sometimes we look at it like part of following Jesus is that I have to. I have to go to church. I have to serve. I have to give. I have to pray. I have to read my Bible. And what the scripture says, no, you don't have to. It's that you get to. That because of Jesus, that we may. That because we have a heavenly Father who loves us, because of Jesus Christ who saves us and rose on the third day and gives us life, because of the power of the Holy Spirit that resides inside of us, because we've been freely given salvation, freedom, purpose, and family, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. And see, what I really believe, church, is this next season of ministry is going to be both important and powerful and impactful for us as a church. In fact, the, the big announcement is this, is that over the next few months, over October, November, and December, what, what I want to do is call our church uh, to both a season of prayer, sacrificial living, and generosity so that we may accomplish four specific things. In fact, what our goal is, is over the next few months, this whole like kind of last three months of the year, is we're going to try to raise $10,000. Like we really want to try to raise $10,000 above normal giving. And we want to see if we can really live sacrificially, if we can really get generous, if we can really figure this out, that if we could raise $10,000, here's four things that we want to do that God's really laid on our heart. The first one is this. Uh, we really want to reach the lost. Like since day one, we, we've had a white hot passion to live out Luke 15, to reach people who are far from God, to see them come home to the loving embrace we, we want to, uh, of their father. We want to be like Jesus who leaves the 99 to go after the one. And what we have discovered over the last three years is that one of the best ways to reach people who are far from God is a combination of both personal invitation and big mailers. Like many of you are here because you received a piece of mail in your mailbox from us. And what nor normally happens, you'll have a conversation with someone and they'll go, hey, I got the mailer or somebody gave me something. I went on your website, I went on Facebook, and then I landed here. And so actually in two weeks, we have a mailer that's going to hit the entire county's mailbox, inviting them to come to our new series on October 14th uh, called uh, Slaying Giants. And we're going to kind of continue with this theme of going to the promised land and we're going to follow the nation of Israel. So when they get into the nation of Israel, they discover giants and there's this big showdown between David and Goliath. And we're going to talk about how we face the giants of anxiety, fear, and that kind of stuff in our lives. Understanding that Jesus is the giant slayer. So we invite you to pray about it. We're inviting you to invite as many people as you can to it. And that's going to happen. But here's what we want to do. We want to send two more mailers over the, over the course of this the next few months. Uh, I had a person tell me recently, Redemption Church cannot be Boone County's best kept secret. He's like, listen, that can be like the cute little restaurant or a cute little ice cream shop at the church. Cannot be the best kept secret in Boone County. And so we would just want to engage people. We want to meet people where they are. We want to send as many mailers as we can over the next couple months, and each mailer costs about $3,000. 
So we want to raise some money to put towards that. That's the first one we want to reach the lost. Uh, the second one we want to accomplish is this. We want to strengthen our ministries. We're a young church, which means we're, we're always growing, we're always building, we're always improving, we're always changing. We always want to bring God our best so that we can serve people our best. We've always said that we will do as much ministry as we have people for and finances for. And so what we're doing is we're expecting God to do some big things, and so we want to be ready. We, we don't want to be a big church. We want to be a healthy church. Uh, we want to be a church that knows Jesus and loves Jesus and is healthy. And so one of the things we've been praying about over this last season is we want to grow in the area of discipleship. And right now we're actually doing some stuff behind the scenes. We have some, some training going on with our owners that we're actually creating a, a ministry structure where each person who calls Redemption Church home could be invested in, encouraged, and cared for by, and discipled by another person. Meaning we, we really want to close the cracks. If you really want to know Jesus, we have people who love Jesus and can help you in your walk with him. Something we've been praying about for a really long time is youth ministry, that we want to have a, something available to raise up the next generation. Uh, we want to bring uh, some more leadership and some more help to our children's ministry. So there's some stuff we've been praying about, some stuff we, we've been wanting to do since day one, and some stuff we've been thinking about. And recently, uh, God has brought Jay and Stephanie Fast uh, to Redemption Church. Uh, they're the cute ones. You don't know what they look like because you're busy looking at the twin girls they've adopted. So you might want to look up and, and peek in their eyes for a minute. But uh, Jay and Stephanie have a ton of ministry experience. They have a ton of youth ministry experience. Uh, Jay served as a youth pastor. Uh, his entire family served as missionaries in Costa Rica. And Jay currently serves as a disciple maker and trainer with Sun Life Ministries. And so we want to raise some money to do two things. We want to support the Fast family in their current ministry as they serve as missionaries to churches, uh, trying to help churches figure out how to make disciples. But we've also asked them if they would come on board and give us some leadership help, if they would help give some vision and leadership and training towards children's ministry, youth ministry, and discipleship ministry. And so that's going to take some finances to do. So part of the money we're, we're trying to raise in this That We May campaign would actually help support them and also give them the capability to provide some really focused leadership here. The third thing we want to accomplish is this, is we want to plant more churches. We're a church plant. Like, we get it. We know what it's like to move and live out of a trailer. We know what it's like to set up and tear down every week. We are a church plant, and we are here because of the support and the kindness and the generosity of other people and other churches that gave sacrificially before we were anything more than an idea. And we want to do that for other people. And so what we're going to do off of the That We Make campaign is we are going to tithe 10% because we practice what we preach. So as we try to reach this goal, we are going to tithe 10% of whatever comes in. And what we're going to do is we're going to break that tithe into two things. So part of the tithe that comes in for that we may will go to Converge Mid-America who help plant us so that we can help plant other church planters. The number four, the other half of that tithe uh, we want to support international discipleship making. We want to see disciples not just made here, but all over the world. 
And Tim Beavis has been a friend of Redemption Church since before we ever get, came, uh, you know, about into existence. Uh, Tim has come a few times. He's coming back uh, this Saturday to meet with our owners. He's coming back in December uh, to preach uh, here at Redemption Church. Uh, but he serves as the vice president of Cary International Outreach Ministries. Say that three times fast. And Tim has dedicated his life now to going and serving pastors and churches in third world countries that if it were not for their ministry, they would not get the training or the help that they need. And Tim goes to scary places in the world, not just dropping in for a day or two, but investing in discipling local pastors so they can make an impact. And so if we can reach this goal, we want to take part of that tithe and give it to Tim and support him as a ministry and support what, what they're doing across the globe. Now listen, that we may is all about people. It's all about reaching people who are far from God. It's about doing to ministry uh, with and alongside people who are, are following Jesus. And here's what we're hoping for. We're hoping for 100% participation from our church. And we're going to ask you to pray. We'd love for you to pray about this. We'd love you to pray for this and the things that we're trying to accomplish. Uh, we're going to ask you uh, to live sacrificially and consider giving above and beyond what you are to give. Which means if you don't give, you could just start giving, and that would be above and beyond. Uh, if you already give, we're going to ask you to consider, would you be able to give some more over the next three months specifically for this? Like, I know in my family, we're trying to find some money. Well, how are we going to do this? So it's stuff like, we'll probably skip the expensive coffee shop for a while. Like, we were probably not going to upgrade any technology over this next season. You might have to put that phone off for a while. It means we're not ordering, like, the sports package so we can watch all the football games. Like, there's things that we're going to choose not to do so that we may participate in this. And I would ask you, as you, as your family, would you maybe consider having that conversation? Uh, maybe for some of you, it means just giving a one-time super generous gift. They're just going to go, hey, we've got something sitting around. We didn't know what we were going to do with this. We've got, we've got this car we've been wanting to sell, or we, we've just been saving up. But we didn't know for what. Like, listen, I'm just asking you to pray about it and talk about it. You could make a huge difference in the life of this church and the life of this community by allowing us to do these ministries. And so how can you give? Well, you can give on a Sunday morning. Uh, you could use the envelopes we provide for you. You can just write, that we may. Like, you could even put one check in an envelope and write, this much goes to my giving and this much goes to that we may, and we'll get it in the right spot. Uh, if you're like me, you can give online. You can go online, you can set it and forget it, right? You can just go on and go, hey, I want to give this much. You could even, if you made up an amount in your mind, you could go online and say, I want to give this amount every month. You could set it up reoccurring and forget about it. You could tell, hey, come January, don't give it anymore, and it won't. Like there's all kinds of available options, but we want to invite you to think about it. We want you to pray about it, and we're going to ask you to commit to it. So you're going to be hearing more about this over the next three months. But listen, I really believe this next season of ministry is going to be big for us. But it's also going to require us to dig deep. It's going to require us to live sacrificially. It's going to require us to pray like crazy and serve God right where he's placed us. So I know I took a ton of time this morning. My timer up here is freaking out, like, be quiet. You went over time. But what we're going to do is we're, we're going to just close out our service this morning. I invite the worship team to come up. And I just want you to pray about this. Like, I want you to think about what we talked about as church as a family and ask you to consider giving sacrificially over the next three months. So we're going to take an offering this morning because it's part of our worship. It's actually part of the way that we fuel and fund the ministries here. It's, it's part of the way that we worship 
and bring a, a testimony and a tithe or a gift into the house. Listen, don't give anything for that we made today. We're just talking about it. Think about it. Pray about it. But we are going to receive the weekly offering this morning because it's part of our worship. So I'm going to invite the ushers to prepare for, for receiving the offering. And then we'll receive the offering. And we're just going to close out our time worshiping Jesus because he's good. We're worshiping Jesus because he died in our place for our sins and rose again so that we might have salvation and freedom and purpose and family. That because of Jesus, we're not fatherless. Because of Jesus, we're not orphans. Because of Jesus, we have family. And they're the people around us today. And I invite you to come back next week because it's the first Sunday of the month. And we're going to celebrate communion next week. And we're going to celebrate Jesus and all that he is and all that he does and all that he has done for us. I appreciate you being here this morning. I appreciate you giving me some extra time. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois, where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.